Welcome to Urban Puritano. On today's bonus edition of Urban Puritano, we continue our exploration of expository preaching in English. We're starting off the new year with a double dose of sermons based on the Lord's Prayer. My approach is eclectic. The biblical text is analyzed according to its subject and its complements in order to arrive at a sermon proposition. I try to infuse a fallen condition focus throughout the message whose argument and applications go from abasing man in his true plight to exalting Christ in his offices, all while privileging the text with the understanding that no text of Scripture is an island unto itself. What text, you may ask? Luke 11, 1-13. Stay tuned for a message entitled, Prayer According to Jesus, Part 1. All Christians are urban Christians. Whether you live in Graceville, Florida, or Chicago, Illinois, the believer is on a pilgrim's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. As we endeavor to live unto God in this world, our faith looks for the city which is to come, whose architect and builder is the living God. You are not alone on your journey. As you travel the narrow way, know that a great cloud of witnesses went before you. Many travel alongside you, and while the Lord tarries, many will follow the same path after you. But until the heavenly city is brought to us, or we to it, one such pilgrim is your fellow traveler. He is Urban Puritano. Please open your Bible with me to Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. With God's help, I'd like for us to consider the Lord Jesus Christ's teaching on an important aspect of discipleship, namely, prayer. Every religion in the world, whether ancient or modern, has had a teaching concerning how worshipers are to verbally direct themselves towards God. This superficial commonality, in part, has led many to conclude that all religions are the same. However, not all teachings on prayer are created equal any more than the theologies they are built upon are equal. For example, in the Far East, there is a religion whose temples contain wooden cylinders with engraved writing all around. Worshippers pray when they spin the cylinders as they walk through the temple. The Christian faith is very distinct, to say the least. Our teaching on prayer derived from and revealed by the Lord Jesus is based on the doctrine of God as personal, and not only personal, but tri-personal, or Trinitarian. Christian prayer exhibits a reciprocity between the triune God and the believer that cannot be captured in the making of engraved cylinders and making them spin. Have you experienced this reciprocity in your prayer life? The disciples of Jesus arrived at a point in their lives where they wanted to be instructed by Him concerning prayer. In reality, every believer is a disciple of Jesus. Therefore, every believer needs to learn what Jesus teaches concerning prayer. My question for you is, what does the prayer life of a disciple of Jesus look like? What does the prayer life of a disciple of Jesus 
look like. Let us read the passage before us. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. I read from the New King James Version. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he had ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend, and go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer within, and say, Do not trouble me. The door is shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because of he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from a father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray for illumination. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the guidance that it gives us, the guidance without which we would be in darkness. Grant us awakening, a sight of your beauty and of your truth found in this portion of your word. Thank you for sending your Son to teach us, to intercede for us, and thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have so graciously given unto your people. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. What does the prayer life of a disciple of Jesus look like? First of all, according to our passage, the prayer life of a disciple of Jesus is characterized by the priorities of the Father's kingdom. Characterized by the priorities of the Father's kingdom. Let's consider what set the stage for the Lord's teaching on prayer first. Verses 1 through 4 establish what Jesus provoked in his disciples, as well as what Jesus provided to his disciples. Verse 1 Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he had ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Here we begin with the observation that Jesus was as committed to prayer as a soldier is committed to training for war. The Gospels in general, and Luke in particular, amply demonstrate that the Lord Jesus was a prayer warrior. 
Luke highlights moments in Christ's life where the Savior avails himself of this spiritual weapon. Luke 3.21 states that Jesus prayed at his baptism. 5.16 says he would often withdraw into the wilderness to pray. 6.12 says that he would go out to the mountains to pray, and sometimes all night. 9.18 says that sometimes he prayed alone. 9.28 and 29 says he prayed with others, as when he took his inner circle up to a particular mountain to unveil his glory to them. Jesus prayed not only when he had the strength, but when he was weak. Luke 22:43 and 44 says that Jesus, being in agony, prayed more earnestly. This particular episode in the life of the Savior was no longer training for spiritual warfare. He was in the middle of the greatest spiritual conflict ever. Luke says, Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. What of the agony of his crucifixion, you may ask? Certainly, on the hill resembling a skull, known as Calvary, where the wrath and punitive justice of God was executed upon Jesus in the place of the sinner, his warrior spirit had to have been extinguished. Certainly, upon that cross, all the enemies of Christ put an end to his prayer life, even as they were putting an end to his physical life. The answer is found in Luke 23, verses 34 and 46. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And the Savior's last utterance upon that cross is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Beloved audience, make no mistake, the prayer warrior spirit of Jesus was never extinguished. Thanks to his intercession for his people, Mount Calvary, where the just penalty of God was meted out, is once and for all converted into Mount Zion, from which flows our redemption. Now, having looked backwards and forward from Luke 11, we can understand why Jesus provoked in his disciples the desire to learn how to pray. John the Baptist may have taught his disciples how to pray, but Jesus was truly an incarnation and true personification of the biblical truth, pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Jesus was the greatest prayer warrior that ever was. He provoked in his disciples the desire to learn how to pray because of his constant example. Are you a disciple of Jesus? One of the implications of Luke 11 verse 1 is that true prayer is not natural. In order to be exercised properly, true prayer needs to be taught to us by the Lord Jesus himself. Do you appeal to Christ and his word to receive instruction in the truth concerning prayer? Or do you rely on your own resources, religious traditions, or your family's customs? Perhaps your prayer life is like that of Martha of the last five verses of Luke chapter 10, distracted, worried, and troubled, because like her, you have chosen not to learn at the Savior's feet. If you would be a disciple of Jesus, you would be taught by Jesus, even in the area of prayer, because this spiritual activity can never come naturally. I want us to observe further that Jesus not only provoked in his disciples the desire to learn how to pray properly, but he also provided a curriculum of prayer, 
What curriculum did the Lord Jesus provide to his disciples that they might learn how to pray acceptably? Although every religion in the history of the world has a teaching on prayer, the only acceptable teaching on prayer is not the one found in a myriad of religious traditions, perhaps yours, or personal preferences, but in Christ's school of prayer, which is found in the Word of Christ. Let us turn to Christ's words in verses 2 through 4. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Never was a prayer so brief, so sublime, and so instructive as this model prayer. Commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, let us begin our analysis by looking at its preface. The preface is simply, Father. A disciple of Jesus draws near to God on the basis of his or her relationship to God. He is our Father, but not simply by virtue of creation, but by virtue of our salvation. Although it can be said that God is the Father of all by virtue of creation, we must remember that God is not the Father of all according to salvation. Who else but the people of God, the people of God's own possession, can draw near to God and appeal to Him as Father? Neither demons nor unrepentant sinners can do so. In fact, the only reason the salvation of sinners is a reality is because no one seeks after God. No, not one. It takes God, the triune God of scriptures, to overcome our sin in all its effects in order to save any at all. And so, just because he created all does not mean he is father to all in the most intimate, familial, and salvific sense, as in this opening prayer, Father. By contrast, Every true disciple of Jesus has the right and privilege to draw near to God as Father, and not only that, but to petition our Heavenly Father. The privilege of drawing near to God in prayer as Father is reserved solely and exclusively to those repentant sinners who have been sovereignly saved by a particular grace that originated in eternity past by God's unconditional election, by virtue of a covenant of redemption, and was applied to us in time and space at our effectual calling, when we were irresistibly drawn and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and by faith alone, in the person and work of Christ alone, we were justified and adopted by the Father. What need did the Father have to have us as His adopted children, when He had the only begotten Jesus Himself, who was very God of very God? From this simple and sublime preface, Father, we find an eternal motive for humility before the God who loved us so greatly, loved us so greatly to save us. We, who were so unworthy and undeserving to be in His presence, are now bidden to draw near to Him as His children and say, Father. If this does not cause you to be humbled, how can you possibly call yourself a disciple of Jesus? The testimony of Scripture is that only those who have experienced the saving grace of God as Father 
in making our salvation both possible and actual, can draw near to him confidently because they have been born of God. 1 John 3.9 Dear listener, what higher honor can a sinful wretch like us have than to have such a loving God as our Father? Do you possess a reciprocal love in your heart in the deepest recesses of your being for him? It is only appropriate for the hearts of God's adopted children to be united to the Father's heart. It is only appropriate for us to draw near to Him since we wouldn't be able to do it if it wasn't for all He did for us and draw near to us to save us. To have access to God and to confidently know that we can draw near to Him as His children is the privilege of every disciple of Jesus. Is your heart inclined towards God as a child towards their father? Our passage shows that there is a way to show or discern if our hearts are inclined and receptive to God as our Father. We can know if our hearts are inclined and receptive towards God as our Father if we advocate and pursue His interests and glory before our own. This takes us to the next heading. Our analysis took us from the preface, and now we consider the petitions. Hallowed be your name is the first petition. For a disciple of Jesus, the petition is first in order and first in priority, as Thomas Watson said. The name of God is simply a figurative way of saying everything related to God's being and actions. To hallow his name is to continually consider, recognize, and esteem God and his works as maximally high and worthy of our praise. Only a child whose spiritual life owes its existence to God has eyes to see and heart to understand that the chief end of man is to glorify not himself, but God, and to enjoy him forever. There is no possible excuse for the name of God not to be hallowed or set apart as maximally high and worthy of our praise. This is especially so for the disciples of Jesus. But therein lies a problem. The glorious name of the Father is not even extensively known throughout the world, and if we were honest, neither is it known intensively by many who claim to be his children and the disciples of Jesus. The scarcity of the knowledge of God is a matter of life and death for the world. The world may not notice their miserable state and predicament, but it is as if they were dangling from a spider's web over the abyss of hell, just as Jonathan Edwards said. To our shame, there exists great ignorance in the church concerning God and His glory. This affects our spiritual health and well-being. That is why a true disciple of Jesus advocates for and pursues the Father's interests and glory by prioritizing this first petition, Hallowed be your name. Quite probably, the majority of persons around us, including loved ones and friends, do not know God as Father. They do not know the Father is worthy of our love, our devotion, our loyalty, our zeal for His honor, and therefore they do not hallow His name in thought, word, or deed. What about you, dear listener?
Are you really a disciple of Jesus as you may claim to be? What areas of your life are impacted by your striving to hallow the Father's name? Perhaps you don't care, and that is why when you do get around to actually praying, your prayers sound more like a shopping list of what you want than what the Father's interests are. Perhaps you resemble the worshiper mentioned at the beginning, who just spun the wooden cylinders and was satisfied with that. But a true disciple of Jesus desires to learn from Jesus, and he teaches us in this first petition that disciples advocate for and pursue the interests and glory of the Father, not only intensively within themselves, but extensively throughout the world, wherever the people of God may be. Before continuing with the next petition of this model prayer for the disciples of Jesus, I would like to offer some practical uses or applications that we can derive from our passage so far. The first use is a word of meditation. Whether we realize it or not, and whether we like it or not, our actual practice serves as a model to imitate by those closest to us. It's only natural. The little brother always admires his big bro. The little sister always admires her big sis. If the older sibling dresses a certain way or has a certain hairstyle, the younger sibling wants to do the same. Now, meditate on this phenomenon because if you are not committed as parents to love God as your father, whose interests and glory you are pursuing in thought, word, and deed, what will you be teaching your children by your negligent example? This leads me to the second practical use, for warning. What will your children conclude if you only expressed Christian piety on Sundays? To draw near to God as Father is a privilege we should enjoy every day with our children. But if we don't do so in the home during the rest of the days of the week, it will seem artificial and superficial on the Lord's Day. Woe to you fathers and mothers, hypocrites, because of your inconsistent or non-existent piety in your homes. By so doing, you make and mold your own children into children of hell. This leads to the third practical use. For our information. From everything that has been considered up to this point, prayer is a great privilege, the great privilege of drawing close to God verbally. It is the humble and thankful recognition of His greatness and goodness as a Father towards us. Is not this accurate description of prayer sufficient motive for us to offer Him our thoughts and words in prayer? Of course, we can and will more fully delineate the contours of prayer. Nevertheless, we can begin to see that the foundation of prayer, as taught by Jesus, is that God is our Father. To be given an audience with our Father is a great motivation for a disciple of Jesus to draw near to the Father in prayer. This brings us to our final word of application or use, for adoration. With St. Augustine, our hearts should rise to heaven with the thought he expressed in the following words. Grant me, Lord, to know and understand which is first, to call on thee or to praise thee. And again, to know thee or to call on thee. Who can call on thee, not knowing thee? For he that knoweth thee not may call on thee as other than thou art. Dear listener, in reality, although there may be a difference 
between logical and chronological order. We don't have to show what we know. When we call upon the Lord, there are elements of praise, elements of knowledge, elements of understanding, elements of love, elements of trust, and all of these can be considered acts of worship directed to God and to God alone. Whatever elements of sin or error we may have this side of heaven, it is God alone whom we call out to according to his word. Psalm seventy-three twenty-five through 28 says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart, and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all thy works. No sooner do we recognize our great need of salvation and God's great provision in Christ do we understand the goodness of the Father. No sooner are we united to Christ, may we know the Holy Spirit has sealed us so that we may forever call upon God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it is all by God's glorious grace. We have no alternative but to worship Him alone. And prayer is an act of worship. We continue with the second petition. Your kingdom come. Here we observe that the focus is expanded from the name of God the Father to the kingdom of God the Father. Our God isn't only our Father. He is also our King. The kingdom and reign of our Father is not only general, but special. It certainly includes the earth and the fullness thereof. Certainly it includes the world and they that dwell therein. However, this second petition refers to God the Father's particular kingdom and reign that, according to Puritan William Perkins, commences with divine grace and culminates in a glorious rule. It is this glorious kingdom that reigns and rules by divine grace that every disciple of Jesus should pray for its coming. Moreover, the nature of the Father's kingdom, although founded and commenced by divine grace, is not averse to conflict. In fact, it can be characterized as spiritually militant. The nature of the Father's kingdom is such that, where other kingdoms exist, whose reign and rule do not recognize God's crown rights, those kingdoms must be opposed, exposed, and disposed of. There can be no neutrality between the Father's kingdom and other kingdoms. Your kingdom come means we, his children, not only desire to align ourselves with, but we actively advocate for the glory of the Father in the destruction of sin's reign, the destruction of Satan's kingdom wherever it may be found. The battlefield may be as large as the world out there, or it most certainly can be found in the secret recesses of your heart. If Satan were to draw close to you while you prayed, what would he hear? Would he hear an interest in your prayer reflecting this petition, Your kingdom come? The most dangerous time for Satan is when he draws near to us and hears us call out to our Father asking, Your kingdom come. That signifies our hearts are part of God's rule and we are looking to expand His kingdom. 
It means our hearts are inclined to and actively advocating for the Father's kingdom to shine forth in victory. But Satan doesn't care at all if all you do in calling upon the Father is use your shopping list of petitions, unconcerned with the Father's crown rights, either in the world, your home, or in your heart. Satan knows that while the Father's kingdom doesn't concern you, you will not advocate for it. By your prayers, your priorities are revealed. You live for your own interests. Not so for a true disciple of Jesus. The Lord Jesus teaches us that the Father's kingdom is not static, but dynamic. It is not shrinking, it is expanding. By means of prayer, Jesus teaches us that the Father's kingdom is spiritually militant, searching out rival kingdoms to destroy. Those rival kingdoms, fueled by sin and Satan, must be petitioned to God against because only He can crush His enemies. Your kingdom come is nothing less than a declaration of war against whatever competes with God and His rule and reign. Do you seek a truce with sin? Do you seek to live according to the principles of this world? Or do you seek the Father's kingdom laws? Do you only feign to be enlisted against the kingdom of darkness? Against whom have you really declared war against? Here marks the difference between a genuine disciple of Jesus and a false one. Whose kingdom do you seek to advocate for and expand? Whose kingdom is most glorious and worthwhile? If the affections of your will, no matter what you may appear to be on the outside, always lead you to seek and advocate for your interests, then you demonstrate to be a disciple not of Jesus, but of Satan. The devil has promised you all the kingdoms of the world if you would not bow down the knee to the Father. With your life, you tell Satan that you are content enough with your own little kingdom, be it money, career, relationships, status, maybe even church respectability. And Satan smiles. It is time for all disciples of Jesus to wake up. From children, youth, single moms, families, fathers, pastors, it is time to wake up. We have been adopted to be sons of the Father. We have been chosen by the Father's sovereign grace to form part of His kingdom. Someone, somewhere, and at some time, prayed for you. Although they may not have used your name, when they prayed your kingdom come, the Father's sovereign good pleasure looked upon you with favor and extended His kingdom, giving you life. Be it known to you that even if you think yourself to be alone in this world, before your ancestors were even born, the Lord Jesus prayed for you. He prayed, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. John seventeen twenty four and 26. This, dear listener, is the foundation of Christian prayer. It is nothing less than prayer according to Jesus himself. I conclude with the following. The Lord Jesus was and is our divine prayer warrior. He knew precisely what his original disciples needed 
and he knows exactly what his modern disciples need, namely, someone to intercede for and advocate for us. The prayer life of a disciple of Jesus is yet another area of our lives that we must confess is insufficient. Thomas Watson observed, Christ went more willing to the cross than we to the throne of grace. Concerning his original disciples and their weakness in prayer, Jesus said, The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 24 But that is not where our sight remains. Our own insufficiency in prayer has a remedy. The remedy is found in the sufficiency of Christ alone. Our divine prayer warrior continues to pray for us, even now. Romans 8.34 says, Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Brothers and sisters, if it wasn't for the intercession of Jesus for his disciples, we would be nothing. Let us therefore follow Christ's holy teaching, his holy example, and fall before the mighty majesty of God. To God alone be the glory. Thank you for joining us at Urban Puritano. We look forward to catching up with you on your next stop along your journey to the city prepared by God for all true believers. 